0: Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Today's Thursday, October 19th, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from bookriot.com. Let's see. We did an unusual thing last week in the feed, if you saw. Rebecca got on her podcast horse and did a little intro um, and a rerun, a posting of our... um, Discussion of Louise Glick, especially a tomato poem, had some very nice email. I didn't forward this to you, Rebecca. I should send it to you. But um, I, I don't remember if it had affirmative consent. But a librarian sent an email to their constituents, you know, commemorating Louise Glick, and in which she had a video of her reading that poem. While being mauled by friendly goats out in a in a field (laughs) somewhere out in out in a pasture,
1: gold. Yeah, so
0: I got to send that to you. I meant to do that before. (laughs) It just jogged my memory.
1: Amazing.
0: Um, A lot of people saying that they they engage with that and they like you know they enjoyed our episode and also have come to be um, Glickians. In their own right. I'm not sure what else there is to say at this point. I read a lot of remembrances and a lot of pieces over this week. There's plenty of poetry out there. I've got some questions about copyright and um, obituaries, to be honest with you, and people's mm. social media, but that is completely beside the point. Um,
2: <laughs> How much of a poem constitutes yeah, use? Yeah, like the
0: whole thing that you can screen. Ca- I don't know about these things. If you're a blue check mark on Twitter, can you just take a Louise? Anyway, that's that's a whole different situation. But the, the outpouring was pretty um, substantial, I would say, over the last mm-hmm. few weeks. And I'd be curious, t- and I wrote in today in books, um, when the news broke, I'm so glad that she got a few years of post-Nobel shine Me too. To, to, to glow, because I, I can only assume that a lot of people came to her after that. I know a lot of people, especially in the poetry community, came to her before. But she was, of in terms of name recognition, not on the same rank of like a Claudia Rankine or a Mary Oliver or someone like that. But I think mm-hmm. she quickly became as people engaged I with think it. so,
2: too. Um, it was one of those rare, wonderful things that can happen, I think, with the Nobel, where yeah. it is, where the work is accessible enough that someone who's curious yeah. can go. And like, you have to do... A little work for Louise Glick, mm-hmm. and we talked about that in the episode. But it's not really difficult. It's not seven long novels. Just to pick a random <laughs> all theoretical example. Together. No. Yeah, that's not recency bias at all. Um, and the barrier to entry is relatively low. So I'm, I'm delighted to know that. A lot of folks discovered her. I, you know, first came to her work because of that Nobel win when you were like, oh, yeah, this is this is the thing we need to talk Mm -hmm. about her. Um, So I'm delighted to know that other people had time for that and that she got to enjoy that um, lived long enough to hopefully hear that she was getting new readers. I hope people sent her nice emails as they read her books. Apparently, this is the thing some people do. They email authors. I cannot imagine that life, but I know, I'm glad that it happens for them Yeah, <laughs> when it's good ones. I mean, we
0: do like to give um, positive email ourselves, so it must be true to authors. It just feels, it feels different somehow, and I don't know why that would be. But um, this, people were even sharing um, emails back and forth with Glick. And I, this is a humble mm. brag situation, I think, happening to some degree. It's like, look at this sure. very nice rejection she gave gave me, or, or <laughs> but it seemed to be a a um, pithy, as you might expect from um, a mm. great poet uh, email co correspondent. So that was cool to see. If you've I'll never done any Glick, um, I still think the Wild Iris is the place to go. The collect the collected is of course wonderful. Yes, but her Pulitzer Prize winning Wild Iris is. It you know, it's like reading the thing itself rather than the collection and it feels different and it it has its own tonalities, and interconnectedness, and it's of a piece, um for sure. So I picked it up, yeah, took a look I at will. it again. Be with us forever. Me too. Um fairly well, Louise Click
2: yes yeah i want i will say for all of my fellow mary oliver fans if you have made your way to mary oliver but you have not then gone to louise glick i do think it's a good like it's a little bit of a level up in terms of the work that you'll have to do to read it but it is not difficult it is really lovely there's a good payoff Mm -hmm. for it um get yourself in there the wild iris is a great starting point really good
0: um Let's see from there, other news and notes. Today, the the new first edition of First Edition came out to a new episode of First Edition. That's a little clearer. (laughs) Um, The title of the episode is How the Modern Publishing World Was Made. It's an interview with Dan Sinekin about his new book, Big Fiction, um, about how conglomeration made the modern American literary landscape, both in terms of content. Um, He does some readings of of Cormac McCarthy and, and Toni Morrison as they turn to genre, with Beloved and, and mm. No Country for Old Men and The Road. And that leveled them up in terms of awards and profile and sales. And also just the the nuts and bolts. There's all kinds of fascinating anecdotes um, littered throughout the, the, the book. He did a lot of archival works. He's principally working with Random House and its various imprints that it acquired and spun off and spun on over time. And that's enough to have a book out. He spent a lot mm-hmm. of time there at Columbia University in the Bennett Surf Collection, Um, I'm trying to think the one for our purposes here, there will be, um, you and Vanessa, I recorded a 25 years later of, uh, you've got mail. That's going to come out on the first edition feed here in a week or so. One thing I didn't know, and I don't know, I, 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 I Googled this Rebecca, but there was actually a really influential editor at, um, random house whose name was Joe Fox. And I cannot believe that it's a coincidence. I just don't believe it. I love that. Um, again, I don't know that he bears any resemblance. Nora
2: Ephron would have known. I, I feel like Nora and Delia would have
0: known. Like they were publishing in that world. Like Delia Ephron, you know, she had a deal with Blue Rider yeah. Press. They moved in these circles. Um, one thing that the the Sinekin book makes really clear, especially before the Conglomeration period in the in the seventies and eighties, really starting back in the sixties. It what I think we've talked about the idea of the literary cocktail party. Mm-hmm. this is where it comes from, where you could run yes. into Alfred A. Knopf and go to book deal if he kind of liked you.
2: Yeah, it's like the Mad Men era yeah. of things. Yeah.
0: Um, and one thing, the professionalization and the, the, the businessification, the conglomeration, the corporation of publishing did was make it much more of mm-hmm. a mature, robust, multi-layered, multi-factored, where there's agents and foreign rights agents and managers and PR and marketing Um and the change is fascinating, and and Dan does a really nice job. I think he has his own perspective on it, which is totally fair. He's human. In the book of like saying it's not really good or bad, or I'm not here to talk about whether or not it's good or bad. That's a different; mm, those are meaningfully mm-hmm. different sentences. But he's like, this is just what happened, right? This yeah. is what happened. Um, so check that out. If you like what we do here, I think you'll find that show that interview very interesting. And if you find the interview interesting, or even if you don't want to check it out. The book for publishing nerds and publishing historians um, and people that like this is extraordinarily interesting. Ragtime by E.L. Doctro becomes a seminal text there. And I don't know, oh, I don't know what everyone's relationship is to that, but it was a huge deal and kind of the last gasp of a certain kind of
2: mm.
0: commercial slash high art, you know, what was, okay. what we once knew as literary fiction being the dominant thing, which it isn't now, right? Where commercial fiction yeah, moves the units. That's really interesting.
2: There was a an excerpt, I think it was on The Nation yes. this week, they excerpted the chapter from the book that's about literary fiction and basically the, the invention of mm, literary mm. fiction. And I know we've had folks write into the show and ask, and we even, we have the conversation internally with editors sometimes of like, what even is literary fiction? What are we talking about when we talk about literary fiction? And it was really interesting. I haven't gotten to read the whole book yet, but I did love reading that excerpt of like how literary fiction was invented yeah. as a category and a way to market. Market books. What was going on in publishing at the time that they determined they needed something like this and constructed this category? And then as you were saying, so the arc of that category as it has become not any longer the dominant mm-hmm. thing that we're talking about when we're talking about books, though it is still in large part, the dominant thing we're talking about when we talk about like books as art or yes. awards contenders, mainstream, you know, non genrified awards contenders we're often talking about, litfic. fic. Um, but I think it feels slippery to try to define it because it, it's a, this is a made-up thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, I,
0: people reacted then, variously to the ideas because I think there there was a somewhat provocative um, subhead to that piece which is like the death of literary fiction. Like it doesn't,
2: Yeah.
0: I think what Dan is really hinting, not hinting at suggesting though that, as the apex predator of the publishing industry, it is no longer that. Like it's now a sub category. I, I don't. We can argue when, that you
2: can't argue with sales you can, numbers. You can't though. argue, That's, but the invention
0: true. of the category bestseller, right? The Stephen mm-hmm. Kings, the Dean Kuntzes, the James Pattersons of the, the um, Daniel Steele. Some incredible Daniel Steele content in this book, by the way. We Ooh, know that she okay. um, is a real machine, but it is fascinating to see how that machine is put together in one of those pieces. Um, but we also touch on, and this is something that you and I have talked about, There, ha- there is not a next generation of the Pattersons and the Kings. Maybe it's going to be right. an Emily Henry, maybe it's going to be a Colleen Hoover, we shall see. But they don't have a hundred books, I mean, literally five decades yeah, under their... We just don't see it this way. It's
2: wild. Yeah. One of the things that I do for our Today in Books newsletter is every month I do a dive back through our podcast Mm. agenda and Book Riot stats and look at what was happening in the world of books and reading last October, like as this month, October of five years ago and October of 10 years ago. And this month, for the first time in doing this, there was someone who was on the bestseller list in all three of (laughs) those. John Sanford yes the like thriller writer political thrillers I couldn't tell you one sentence
0: about John Sanford
2: me neither and it was a really grounding reminder of like right the most of the people who read books are not reading the stuff that's the highbrow literary Mm -hmm. fiction these we know this that like it's James Patterson who's keeping publishing afloat but this was like really knowing it but Sanford had a bestseller in October of last year October of 2018 Hmm. October of 2013 and then I went and was like, how many, how often does John Sanford publish? Like, is it every five years? No, no, every October he has a new book. Basically, well. it's almost always October, and then it's almost always at the top of the bestseller list for at least a week or two. And you're right. Like, that, I think that's a very generational thing those books are selling mostly to a generation of readers ahead of you and me and i don't know that our generation of readers or the folks below us are going to age into wanting something like that someone that is doing a book every year that is intended for that really mass market genre appeal, but what's going to take its place is a huge well, it's question.
0: commercial romance right now. I mean, if you had to put right your chip now, on yeah. something, you'd say it's an Emily Henry or a Colleen Hoover, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and Danielle Steele, not for nothing, is not unlike that. Like, you know, a True. genre in what then got more... You know, this talks... I I could have talked to Dan for three hours, as, and I actually had to cut out a bunch of my own ramblings and like, takes because, again, I want to have him have the mic. So um, if when you listen to that episode out there, imagine that the raw cut was twice as much me, and there's still too much me, but I did cut a bunch of me out. But I was like, okay, what what is the commercial fiction? What is the apex predator right now? And I, I think mm, mm-hmm. we're still a little bit in the post-Jennifer Weiner era of commercial fiction doesn't have the plot it's like capital l capital f literary fiction when is the apex product it had both it had the biggest sales and it won i mean doctor won the pulitzer prize like that's what that's what weiner and interesting i think weiner was talking about that that era more than she was talking about the era she is maybe a jonathan franzen right maybe the last Mm -hmm. one of those Mm -hmm. though maybe it's barbara kingsolver now that book is still in the top yeah anyway king kingsolver is an interesting example she doesn't write quite as frequently as you might want someone to do anyway when did the word upmarket enter into the discourse? Because it seems mm. like in the wake of the dinosaurs falling, that is one of the mammals that sort of emerged from the from the chaos of right. a ladder, right? To quote Game of Thrones and dinosaur yeah. evolution, the same idea. I
2: don't think we were talking about upmarket when we started doing. I don't this think podcast. so either. We it, were still Chiclet,
0: like, right? We did Chiclet before we did upmarket, at least in our right, regular sort or, or we sort or outside. of navigated.
2: Yeah. Uh, we we slid from chick lit to like women's fiction, became a commercial the appropriate fiction, way, which isn't to commercial fiction, which is just code. Well, I mean, <laughs> I guess,
0: yeah, yeah, I guess so. It's, um,
2: yeah, I feel like upmarket is a last five years right. development.
0: Right. Well, if you're interested yeah. in this discussion, wait till later in the show. We're going to talk about <laughs> Lessons in Chemistry, um, oh. the Apple TV show. And Lessons in Chemistry should be called upmarket. Um, yes. For good or for ill. And I think we can talk about the book. And it's been a while since we read the book. And I don't remember. And that's part of my part of the discussion will be. But a fascinating document. I think that book is the apex. That kind of book is the apex predator. Mm-hmm. The problem mm-hmm. with that, though, is it doesn't have the branding potential of the Stephen King. It just right. doesn't. Because they don't write often enough. And they just haven't built that way. Um you know, if Delia Owens had a new book coming out this week, it would not sell like a new Stephen King book would. Maybe the first couple of weeks, or let me put it this way, it doesn't have the guaranteed sales success. Yeah,
2: I think the thing that you get from Stephen King or James Patterson or Danielle Steele is the double hit yes. of there's branding around the author, and there is genre consistency, and those genres come with conventions that are pretty well defined. Right. You know what you're going to get.
0: You know what and, right, you're going to exactly. get.
2: Exactly. You you know what you're going to get. And so like I really liked lessons in chemistry. I will read Bonnie Garmus's next book out of curiosity, but my baseline expectation from a writer like that is that the next book is going to be about something completely yeah, it's different. It's not going to be a physicist
0: like, who opens a car repair shop. <laughs> I mean, just the right. mad lives it a little that bit. That
2: I'm, yeah, that I'm, but I will be getting into another story told yeah. by someone whose storytelling I liked. And that's about as much as you know. It's it's very similar to like our relationship to Colson yeah, Whitehead Ishiguro. and the fact that we, the thing we love about both of, mm-hmm. yeah, Whitehead and Ishiguro are great examples is that it will be different every time. It's not even, it might be different. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like with the exception of Whitehead doing his Ray Carney Harlem thing right now, you know it's going to be different every time. Mm -hmm. And even his expression of crime novel is very different from the typical conventions of crime novel. We don't have anybody who's really rising up like that. Emily Henry is close. I think contemporary romance is the closest that we could get to something like what Stephen King has done because you do get the conventions of genre Mm -hmm. and the know what you're getting plus a brandable author Colleen Hoover is going to be an open question for me like I think you were noting on Slack recently that we've started to have the weeks where there are no Colleen Hoover books in the top top 10 bestsellers that was a big flash in the pan and it seems to be waning and like, my money will be that we don't see Colleen Hoover continue to ascend to the top of the bestsellers. But Emily Henry, it's been a little slower mm. and steadier. That's, I think, a more reliable way to build a career. Not that the two of them are the like indirect competition or the only well, buyer you can have to make, and, but they're yeah, very and available.
0: And James Patterson right. and Daniel. Like, there's right. room for a lot of these kinds of like people who sure. consume these. I think Emily Henry is probably the closest because of cadence. And it, one of the strangest things about the Colleen Hoover, she had a bunch of backlists that she could flood the market with through right. publishers In other words, If she writes two books a year, let's say, a spring and a fall or something like that, mm-hmm. I think right now they would ascend to the heights of the bestseller list, how long they will stay there, how long people have an appetite for that. It's hard to know that the transition from a trend slash fad into a durable brand is so hard to make, and it's even harder to call that this is now a brand yes. versus the long tail of some kind of... Uh, fad, is, fad is too pejorative um, trend, right? That it's trendy. Mm-hmm. Because one thing you can say about Stephen King and James Patterson is that you can no longer call Stephen King books a fad. Holly is... St- I mean, we're, right. this is maybe a transition to some other things. <laughs> After this show, we're going to record the next Patreon episode, which is a, a fall revision to the Hot 50 list. And I had to put Holly on it. And I didn't have it originally mm-hmm. on there. Because it continues mm-hmm. to sell... And we talked about how I underrate Stephen King because I don't read Stephen King and it falls into this. He's such a weird example for so many, but I I did have to put it on there. Like I got to admit, right? It's it's not even begrudging. It's just the truth of the matter. But that's been, we're working on 50 years of that. That is hard. It's just so hard to do. And people are in for Stephen King and he can be more of a roulette wheel than people think. Right? You get mm-hmm. eleven twenty-three mm-hmm. sixty-three, you get sure Stand by yeah, me, you get, some curveballs. you get some, you know, curved balls, but then people tend to like the curveballs or they know there's gonna be enough of a one for him, one for them, kind of like okay, even mm-hmm. if this one is more realistic or a divergence, they like that, but they also know that it's not gonna be too long before they wait, they're gonna get a shining prequel, um or something else like that. So stick you know, check out the Patreon if you if you'd like the hot fifty is kind of a fun idea that we'll check in from time to time. I think with that, we better do a sponsor break um, and get back on the news of the week.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Seller and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is a perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibe so if you you know it's graduation season you want to revel in that but like make it scary you know what i mean pick up the dare by natasha preston and thanks again to underline for sponsoring this episode today's episode is brought to you by harper muse publisher of troubled waters troubled waters is an intimate portrait of two generations a granddaughter and a grandmother coming to terms with what it means to be family black women and alive in a world on fire in heartfelt lyrical prose mary anase hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis black resistance and the enduring power of family Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, The Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South. Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters for sponsoring this episode. that he will have seven great loves in his life and then he meets arena in 95 and she's like the best she's brilliant charismatic quick-witted funny they fall in love
0: Shall we have a, let's check in with where we are with celebrity memoirs. It's been an interesting week. I wrote in today in books today Mm -hmm. um, that one of the stories that Serena Williams signed a two book deal, one for a memoir, one of the books, a memoir, and one of the inspirational something. I think it feels a little bit, and I said this, this is a little bit of a pattern that is being used with some of these, the Michelle Obama one where you get the memoir, but then you get a a- example. What Was it guide your light, shining your light, look at your light, don't look at the light? I can't remember. What's the those. light within? There it is, the light like within. That. So that that sort of one, two punch makes a ton of sense. You get the story, and then you get the vibes. I think this is mm-hmm. a super smart strategy, and it could work for especially people who are, they are inspirational. People look at them as some kind of inspiration, You can and you can do both. And it might help separate the task of what the kind of content people want, but um, and I don't know. It's, it's auspicious timing. I, the deal was announced yesterday. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's just because the Britney heat is so intense and the Jada PR trail is so <laughs> Ooh, yes, juicy. The
2: trail. Mm-hmm. I wonder,
0: uh, Serena is as smart as they, they get when it comes to all sorts of things, but um, I wonder if her price went up in seeing how much juice there were around some of these, this worthy um, yeah. uh, uh, woman in me combo i i I don't know i found the the timing to be very interesting to be honest it is.
2: it is really interesting and it's hard not to think that they are connected i think it's probably likely that they aren't connected that deals take long enough to get solidified and yeah the the pause between the deal is done and everyone is actually ready to announce it on the other hand you know what can change is the
0: number associated with
2: yes Right. So maybe, yeah. maybe. I wouldn't be surprised. No. She's very savvy. So if anybody was going to leverage this, if there was an opportunity to leverage it, I would expect that Serena Williams would be a person who would recognize the opportunity there and do it. It wouldn't be surprising at all. Um, but we will we will never know. The celebrity memoirs are Wow. This is Popping quite hot. Off. I do I, this is the hottest celebrity memoir season I think we've seen. I was gonna, in the gonna life ask you, is it just me
0: or was it like this feels like a um the temperature spiking like September 2023 <sighs> global temperatures. It
2: feels it feels like that, and I don't know if it's a product, mm. as, especially for Brittany, of the folks in like the elder millennials hitting elder millennial celebrities have hit midlife and can have enough life and enough perspective to write a memoir and look back (laughs) on things in some kind of meaningful way. Or if it's just, we just got very lucky and Britney's coming out. We know that's going to be juicy. Jada Pinkett Smith is coming out. That's going to be juicy. It's also a cultural moment where women who have had complicated experiences in public life, are able to tell their own stories and present their perspectives and the public is not just ready to hear those but really eager Mm. to hear them because we've been doing this sort of socially reparative work around the way that women were talked about publicly especially in the 90s and so for Britney I think that's a large part of it is not just let's hear it from Britney's side but like the public the media were really awful to Britney Spears and they have not been wonderful to Jada Pinkett Smith and there is some something really interesting about a moment where people are very curious to hear to hear the whole story and to embrace that person's side. It's not I haven't seen a lot of press around either of these that are like, look at the horrible stuff. Here's here's Britney yeah. Spears's big mistake. Right. You know, and that's the way it would have been spun or one of the ways that it would have been spun a couple decades back. Um, so really interesting stuff. I am so Sad that you are going to be out of town for work next week, mm. and that I will have to be on newsletter duty because all I want to do on Tuesday is listen to Britney it's Spears five and hours read Jasmine long. Ward. It's
0: not that long. <laughs> this what someone was saying in the Slack. it's Not that long. You can you can you can shotgun that easily.
2: And I'm gonna like mainline it. Two hundred twenty-four pages. This writing, writing some guess, newsletters. Like yeah, no doubt. Yeah, probably something like that. And while we're noting Britney, we talked last week or maybe two weeks mm. ago about how there had been an announcement that someone else was going to be narrating portion at least portions of her memoir so that she did not have to relive the really traumatic difficult stuff it was announced this week that someone else is michelle williams so add this to the list of how much did they get paid to narrate
0: <laughs> I, I need a soundboard i've always wanted kind of a soundboard for the book ride podcast because I, I need here is john hammond's um we spared no expense from jurassic park <laughs> you know yes. because i was like could you get a top, more top flight, sort of, gener- you know, Gen X, elder Gen X, blonde Academy mm-hmm. Award? I mean. Like- would Michelle Williams be a candidate to play Britney Spears in a Britney Spears is, biopic? She would. Absolutely. Right. She's been Monroe. Yes,
2: Michelle Williams reading a Britney Spears memoir. This is up there with Meryl Streep narrating yeah. the Anne Padgett novel. And it turns out that she is doing most of it. Britney yeah. is going to narrate the introduction, the prologue, and then Michelle Williams will be narrating the body of the book um mm. so we'll have a link in the show notes to the piece and variety where they spoke about this and michelle williams talks about standing with britney and why um she is signing on to do this but i would not have guessed if we had done a like who do you think is going to narrate britney spears's memoir i would not have gotten to michelle williams because she just seems too top shelf yep. but i think maybe we need to start expecting to see these top well, here's shelf the names this thing. is a thing now
0: well i am old Right, and Michelle Williams is about my age, but also Britney Spears was a pop star when I was a teenager. Michelle Williams was probably mm-hmm. a huge Britney Spears fan. Your Bayesian prior yeah. is that they were if you were a teenager in 1998 to 2003. You probably, mm-hmm. it's like you're, now, if you're a teenager now, your Bayesian prior is that you're a Taylor Swift fan. Now, of course, there's exceptions yeah. to that, but your <laughs> assumption should be that you're a Taylor Swift fan.
2: Yeah, yeah. You watch your Dawson's Creek, yeah. and then you dance around your house to hit me baby one more time, that's right. and that's what we were doing in 1998. Yep. Yeah.
0: Fascinating to see. Would love to see the contract. I never will. Little Birdie's always open. <laughs> podcast at BookRiot.com. Speaking of people stepping in, LeVar Burton mm-hmm. um was tapped to um and has agreed to host the National Book Awards, though I saw there is special guest, Oprah Winfrey, so they're 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 uh-huh. doing a little of that talk. I wrote in today's books day at the National and I think I've been said on the show that my draft picks did not include LeVar Burton only because he hosted mm-hmm. in twenty nineteen. So I thought there was, I don't know, I wasn't looking at someone who had done it before. I just wasn't thinking those terms. There's not many repeats, but I think it makes sense. Why not? You know, when I was a kid, Billy Crystal hosted the Oscars from 1897 all the way up till 1999, (laughs) right? 200 years in a row. It was Billy Crystal. (laughs) And then every now and again, you drop into Steve Martin. But I think that's Mm -hmm. cool. And LeVar Burton has a probably as unappeachable book Q rating as you're going to find. yes. And part of it is because he doesn't up. really doesn't really represent anything other than yay books, which is that's not a that's not a demerit. Anyone who's written a book has politics, right? I, I don't LeVar Burton's. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so all quadrants are excited, including me, um, to see him. So I think a safe and good pick is an exciting pick for me. Not really, but once you're coming in damage control, you're not looking for exciting. You're looking for safe. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's interesting seeing who the hosts are each year of yeah. the National Book Awards. But, like, if you could get Lavar Burton to just host them every year, that's not a bad no, choice. No,
0: no, Um, It'll be live streamed November 15th. Rebecca, should we mm-hmm. record a po- our podcast this week <laughs> as a running commentary in the National Book Awards live stream?
2: <laughs> I think we should do a very quick reaction episode when it happens. Of uh, You're afraid of what you're, are, you're afraid
0: <laughs> of the takes are going to be so scorching that it's going to melt the internet?
2: Are our souls still in our bodies? No. Do we understand what is happening in the world of books and reading based on mm-hmm. who wins? Uh, it'll, be, it'll be interesting. It might have to be a bonus episode. Yeah. I'm not sure that we can keep it clean enough <laughs> for the main feed. That's
0: true. That's live to tape when we don't know what the inputs are going to be. Got to be careful about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Moving on down the line. Um, so I think the big story in the book world over the last seven ish days has been Scholastic creating slash confirming an option in its book fa- school book fair armada, right, of, of what they're going to bring to your school in those cases. I don't even know if they do those things anymore. But what they're going to bring in terms of stock to sell, that they were creating something, a special collection that was optional that would include the kinds of books that are going to get censored, challenged, or otherwise banned, in as we've been talking about. And so if you're a librarian Mm -hmm. or you're administrating one of these schools, you could check a box. I don't know if it's actually a box, but you could basically say, we don't want this. Don't bring it with you when you come. And that is a very tough look. And there's a part of me, I agree with a lot of the takes about Scholastic. You know, this is not standing up for these voices. I'm also sympathetic to some degree for the people on the ground in these schools that want to have a book fair but also mm-hmm. don't want to be subject to the nuttiness that may come along with it, or the consequence. Um, and I, I guess I want to remind people here, or remind myself here, that even if Scholastic is doing something unideal here, or these librarians make these decisions, they're not the ones creating the problem. It's the book banners. Right. It's the it's the people writing letters. It's the bigots. Now that doesn't say that it, it exonerates all behavior. I'm not saying that, but it is helpful to remember. I think to some degree that these are reactions to environment, and I don't know what a better answer is, right? If there if there really are these jurisdictions and districts where a librarian wants to have the Scholastic Book Fair come and make the books available, but they really believe if they do this and there's LGBTQ titles scattered in, that they're going to have hell to pay. I don't know what you do. I really don't. And some people have said, well, maybe we should rethink book fairs completely because you're making, you know, not all kids have money to buy books. I think that's a very a very valid critique, Mm. but that existed before that critique would have existed before this option was available. So I don't know. I'm I'm not running scholastic business. I would like to think there's something other than doing this. There's something, this, there's an element that looks a lot like segregation here. Um, Mm -hmm. and that is never what you want to be compared to. It's hard for me to believe that something that looks like segregation like this is the best solution to a very difficult problem. I don't know, Rebecca. What have you seen? What do you think? What do you feel?
2: Oh, I've seen all of those takes. Um, I think we're on the same page here. That this is a problem that nobody should have to solve it's a needle nobody should have to thread and scholastic notes in their statement about it that this is a direct response to the fact that there's legislation that's either active or pending in more than 30 states that prohibits these particular kinds of books and since scholastic can go into schools and then they create a situation where books are purchased by kids on their own without supervision They say, quote, these laws create an almost impossible dilemma back away from these titles or risk making teachers, librarians and volunteers vulnerable to being fired, sued or prosecuted. That is a very real risk that I imagine Scholastic does not want to be part of at all. And I completely understand why, because the stories then are a teacher gets fired, librarian gets fired because of Scholastic book fairs. That's guilt and bad PR. This is this is a terrible situation all the way around it does look like segregation i've seen folks say like hmm, separate but equal wonder where i've heard that Mm -hmm. before i don't know i don't know how it could be done better um maybe these books are on the list by default and you would have to opt out of having them maybe kids could I don't know. Now, I'm just guessing. I'm also not a parent, so I don't know no. how schools do all yeah. these things every day. Yeah. But like do you sign a permission slip to opt your kid out of the book fair if those things are going to be available or like can they just really not make them available because it's against the law in those places? It seems to me that this that Scholastic shouldn't be the one having to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. This needs to come from the schools and the school districts making a decision. The thing that my like in the court of rightness, the thing my heart wants to see Scholastic do is like, fine, if you don't want these titles, you can't, you have, can't a book have a book fair. fair. Yeah. And then the vast majority of parents who do not support these book bans can use that as one more piece of ammunition of like, look what's going on in our schools. Mm-hmm. They have banned books and we can't even have a book fair for our kids. Like, I think some people would get pretty righteously upset if their kids couldn't have the nice experience of a scholastic book fair. I'm also seeing ads around our local elections here where the Democratic candidates are really, really targeting the candidates that have supported book banning. And it seems to be working. So, this would be a powerful piece of messaging, but like I have not seen the scholastic PNL. I don't know what it would cost them. Could they continue doing meaningful business? If a bunch of schools in 30 States just didn't have book fairs at all. Like if they could take that financial risk, I hope that they would, I hope that they had that conversation and. I I don't think we're going to know (laughs) Like someone at scholastic could come out swinging about it. Um, but i don't think that there there is not an elegant way that i can think of to solve this and that's part of the point that's the part folks of the doing point. this that's want right. to make it difficult this is a win they for the bits
0: that scholastic is doing this.
2: right they they want to make it difficult yes. they want to make it so like bureaucratic and to, they want to make it feel scary so that mm-hmm. people will back down and so that's another reason that i would hope this would be addressed but it seems to me still that this is a thing that's going to have to be solved in our states and in our schools and on our school boards because the the vendor in this situation cannot possibly be like scholastic can't be expected to figure out how to comply yep. with the book policies in 30 different states <laughs> like that's a, a full-time job for several lawyers probably
0: well, if they did comply and they're, they're, is that any better, right? Is it? It's like, well, segregation is right. legal in the South, so Walgreens is going to be like, yeah, w- you know, we have a colored. C-. It's like, yeah. well, that's virtuous, right? We're complying with the law. Have fun with that. I mean, that's turned out right. Well like for everyone.
2: the the other side is like. The thing that would be worse would be rather than this optional set of LGBTQ titles Mm -hmm. and books that are about racism, just excluding them from everything, like which is an option that's available. Like Scholastic could have done that. They could have said this is creating too many issues. We don't want to be tied up in all of this stuff. We're just going to pull titles like if these books have been banned and challenged in your state, they're not going to be available Mm from the book fair and then they would have been in legal compliance i i could understand that they're probably trying to find a way to make them available however they can possibly make them available i don't know that there's a win here in terms like i don't know that there's a plan scholastic rolls out for this other than f you we're gonna take our toys and go home You, you can't have a book fair that would get any kind of positive public reception this is really tough for everybody and that is a win for the for the book banning folks like that's part of it. And I, I I would assume folks at Scholastic are having really difficult conversations about this and are probably really feeling what the public response has been.
0: The brand has taken a huge that's, hit this week. I yeah, mean, I'll the, say that. The, right. Absolutely, it's, it has. Yeah, it has. the
2: brand is taking a hit. This is not the kind of commentary that you no. want coming out about and we're being pretty measured about it house. just compared
0: to some takes out yeah, there. Yeah, yes. Oh, at this yeah.
2: point. <laughs> yeah. Um, nobody wants to be in this position. No. This is a battle, but it's not the war. Yeah. And I think that that's the perspective that I want to bring to it. The battles do matter, but... Like, I really don't know how Scholastic could have solved this or addressed it in a way that would have both made it possible to comply with the laws and not have not feel like you're putting teachers and librarians at risk of being prosecuted or losing their jobs and also would have made folks like us happy about their solution. I
0: mean, we say this all the time at our jobs is like it's only a principle if it costs you something to to Mm -hmm. to act on it. And. I think there could be there would be a case to be made, and again, it's easy to spend other people's money. To say right. our our collections come with titles that support all kinds of lives, all kinds of people, all kinds of kids, mm-hmm. and all kinds of perspectives. And if you don't want that, don't have us come to your school. Yeah, and it would cost. I don't know how much it would cost them. I don't know if they did the math. I don't know if they said this is an existential threat. Um, is there? That's. I think that's probably what the the most vociferous voice critiquing scholastic today would want to say now like you said they're also making it just so hap- you also need to be skeptical when it just so happens the best solution is also one that protects our bottom line is also be skeptical mm-hmm. of that and that's what this looks mm-hmm. like at the same yeah. time how many how many cases how many book fairs would not happen if scholastic did that i think it would have been worth trying that from scholastic's point of view Me to too. say you know there are books in this and and you know you don't have to do it publicly but you do it with the peep the schools and say we know in your district this and this has happened the books you know here's what's in here's what comes with us and it's a package deal we believe in this we don't believe in a book fair that doesn't include diverse voices and, mm-hmm. and marginalized um, perspectives and if that's not something you can deal with then that we totally understand that but we're not we're not going to make a whites only yeah. section of our diner for you
2: yeah that is uh, gener- like generally, obviously, the solution I wish they had come you know. to—that's the message that I wish we were seeing. There are—I have generous and less generous yes, readings about <laughs> how the and why that is not sympathizes the solution with this, prob-
0: with this business yeah,
2: problem. I yes, would say. and and you're right. It is not at a principle until it costs you something. But you do have to decide if the cost is one that you, can, yeah. it, right, that you can take the hit. And I just don't have any sense no. of how big of a part of Scholastic's business book fairs are. And if you're doing math like this, you have to go all the way to the bottom of that slippery slope of, okay, what if we don't get to have book fairs in 30 states? Mm. What if all of the schools where we send the message saying, hey, our book fairs come with these titles. If you're not going to support making these titles available, we're not going to be in your school's It's possible that all the schools in all those states would say well we would be doing something illegal if yep. we sold your books here so you just can't come here can can scholastic lose 60% well <laughs> of and it doesn't even need to be the number of states it's which
0: states are is it and, florida and texas those are that's, uh, right. that, that's and, not just two states <laughs> i mean that is right, a percentage right. of the population they're very it's populous
2: huge. and you know it's not likely that they would lose all the business in all of the affected states but you have to consider the what if because yep. that's the proposition that they would be taking on i imagine that's You know, we couldn't lose sixty percent of our business (laughs) over a principle, Mm -hmm. and we would. I can imagine how angsty the conversations around how are we going to thread this needle so that we can have some kind of principle and also continue operating a business would be. There are reasons to be skeptical and disappointed all the way around it. And Scholastic is taking criticism. I think that they deserve to take some criticism here, or at least to. Be held accountable and have these questions asked yep. about how this went. I wish that this statement came with more information about the process.
0: Yeah, and I don't know. Um, do you? Th- what if? What if they said we're doing this and we don't like doing this, but yeah. in, in support of our customers, which is that's who they are. Like, just say it. This is our customers. Mm-hmm. We're making this an option. At the same time, we're committing a million dollars a year to lobbying, or mm-hmm. it, you know, we have a million dollar legal defense fund for any teacher. That gets sued because of a. I think that would have gone a very
2: long way. Yeah, Yeah, that would have gone a long way towards reassuring. It was like putting your money where your mouth is, and then it costs you something. Yeah. Um, But just doing the, you can opt out of having these titles
0: and kind of washing your hands. It feels like a washing your hands of the whole thing.
2: It feels it's just mealy-mouthed. I think this statement is mealy-mouthed. The solution feels mealy-mouthed, and if it had come with a full-throated expression of here's how serious we are as a company that these are our values and that we support these voices we believe these books are important we're going to donate a percentage of all of our book fair or a million dollars or whatever Mm -hmm. it is um to lgbtq and you know racism related causes or you know something like that that would have i think quieted the okay scholastic is just making a business decision
0: here yeah i mean it it, are you do you stand for something other than the bottom line right, right. and mm-hmm. this one doesn't it doesn't feel that way it just even the name of the collection it's like a double whammy because it's like very touchy-feely kumbaa i don't know, celebrate every voice or something like that mm-hmm. and like that's the thing that's optional it's like god that's so, right? so crap it just sucks so bad um mm-hmm. but i do want to relocate You know, Kelly does a really good job on this in her coverage of literary activism of like the work to be done is not criticizing scholastic. I think they like that could be part of whatever is advocacy, but the root of the root here, if you got scholastic Mm -hmm. to do whatever you want scholastic to do, let's say that. Let's say you let's say you you, you could tell you Scholastic, you're gonna do this, that doesn't make the reading lives of the kids in these districts one iota better. That is not the root cause of the problem. Um, it's yeah. easy to pin the tail on this particular donkey because it's the donkey presenting its ass to us right now. But that is not the farm. <laughs> the farm here is these bigots right. and these school board members and, and this hate. Um, and it's you know it doesn't matter that you know it's eleven people account for no- it, that doesn't matter. Like the system mm-hmm. is being attacked by these people. Um, and again, I think it's helpful to remember that it doesn't mean Scholastic did anything right here. I think there's a case we made that they didn't but they're also not the cause of the thing that they're reacting to. Right. right. Okay, um, one more sponsor break and then maybe we can get into a little, well, I don't know, we'll see where we want going to go. I, I want to talk about all this stuff. How much time do we have? Oh, crap. All right, sponsor break and we'll try to rush through this.
1: <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read and I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my today's episode is brought to you by the dial press publishers of the prospects by kt hoffman the pressure cooker of minor league baseball leads to major chemistry in this exhilarating sexy and triumphant rivals to lovers debut romance gene yanescu is the first openly trans player in professional baseball he has nearly everything he's ever let himself dream of that is until louise estrada gene's former teammate and current rival gets traded to the beavers Now, Jean and Louise can't manage a civil conversation off the field or a competent play on it, but in the close confines of dugout benches and roadie buses, they begrudgingly rediscover a comfortable rhythm. As the two grow closer, the tension between them turns electric and their chemistry spills past the confines of the stadium. So this is one of the first adult rom-coms published by a major publishing house centering a gay trans man by a gay trans man. It also has ADHD and anxiety representation and some joyful, heartfelt moments. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to The Dial Press, Publishers of The Prospects by K.T. Hoffman, for sponsoring this episode.
0: I'm not sure if there's anything new to say about this Barnes and Noble piece. I think it's the the most fully featured one of these. James Daunt. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how great Barnes and Noble is now. That's probably, um, you know, their marketing staff, their publicity staff over at the private equity firm that owns water, uh, the water <laughs> Elliot, store. Yeah. It's what they called, right? We always tell. We're always told we, we get it right every time we pronounce that. I think it's Water <laughs> Store. Um, they sell books. Anyway, um the they finally got a times to do a long thing, right? They've been in all these other places, mm-hmm. they've been Publishers Weekly, they've been Atlantic and other places, but the, the gray lady finally turned their attention to what the hell's going on with the Barnes and Noble. And this is the most like architectural, like literal nuts and bolts one we have seen. Yeah. The one that jumped out to me, um, A because I used to go to this bookstore, and it's sort of canonical insofar as the Upper West Side Barnes and Noble, it's like at 86th Street. Mm-hmm. Is Fox Books? Like, I mean, that's the one that is really being talked about or, like, it's the closest analog in You've Got Mail. And they talk about in that piece what was being done. And not just that. And this is something I hadn't seen before. What the outcome could be. Like, what's the net effect? And by spending Mm -hmm. millions of dollars of, like, updating it to this new format, They went really out of their way to say they don't use architects or brand managers. I thought that was a weird look. It's like, we actually don't know what we're doing. We're just (laughs) kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall uh, because we like it. Um, It's like they think that store sales could double based on that renovation. Mm -hmm. And if you would have told me that the opportunity for growth just from aesthetics and organization – I don't think Rebecca. I would have thought it was that much. Were you surprised by that number? You thought it would be more yes. or less? What was your expected value? Oh no.
2: I okay. my eyebrows went way up. Yep. At double?
0: <laughs> double.
2: Like maybe I just have not thought enough about how IKEA really knows what it's doing when they guide you through that store and that kind of design mm-hmm. matters, but I was very surprised to, to read that that is how sales are going in some of these renovated Barnes and Noble stores mm-hmm. that have moved away from the like t- sort of track layout where you've got you know purchasing at the front and then a bunch of impulse items and you do have to like kind of really look for the things that you want and they're trying to make it more friendly for browsing and they're solving for flexibility yep. here, which is a thing that you and I both uh, <laughs> really appreciate Very much so. uh, in t- Uh, and that they want the stores to be able to move stuff around and have different kinds of displays and for different kinds of Mm -hmm. customers to be able to shop and browse together. And it does just look a lot nicer. He, you know, dot notes in here that the old Barnes & Noble aesthetic, the one from the store in the Country Club Plaza that we both love in Kansas City was really masculine. And he says it's, you know, influenced by a small little band that happened to own the company. You know, like the dark wood and the green carpet. Yeah. It did. It looked like... Maybe you should have a cigar and a
0: grass of brandy and a smoking jacket yeah like a 19th century yeah
2: Yeah. he tells you that in his library there there are many leather-bound books and you're like yes okay Okay. um but it's bright and it's welcoming and you know they've got people quoted in the piece who are like yeah this this bookstore actually feels like it's about books again Mm. which for a while barnes and noble felt like it was like a toy store that happened to sell books but doubling, it really surprised me.
0: And who knows, <laughs> like, PR, marketing, Yeah, speak, and who knows, yeah.
2: right. And the, the reporter does note, let's see who wrote this piece, um, Maureen O'Connor, does note that since Barnes & Noble is privately held, yeah. they don't have to disclose their financials. So we will not be among those who know what's going on here. Although I imagine if it does double... Daunt will go on another PR you know. tour to crow about it.
0: Well, um, I would imagine if they weren't seeing returns from this invest they've been doing this infrastructure stuff for several yeah. years now. So if they weren't really seeing results, they still wouldn't be doing it, I don't think. That's true. Um, and they note that some of them if the if the shelves are built into the walls, that's a much higher ask and the mm-hmm. you know the value of the, the renovation is so the cost of renovation is so expensive they don't do it. Anyway, I thought it was a good piece. If you're interested in you it, go check it out. Yeah, New York Times Paywall having said that. Some of this is just an excuse to tell you an anecdote about a recent trip to Barnes and Noble. Would you like to hear it? Oh, I'm not sh- you know I love I'm these. Not sh- I've got there's three pieces to it, and any one of them isn't worth relaying, and maybe all three of them together still isn't worth. But here we go. <laughs> Try me. Maybe if I can bundle them, right? You can disassociate the value of the new pieces <laughs> by putting them into a bundle. So I went into one of these new format. It's this is not just a reformat. It this is a new store, and it's in okay. it's in a strip molly kind of area here in Portland. It's out by the airport, for those of you who are listening or ever come to the airport want to check out the Barnes & Noble. And it's a smaller format, covers out. It's this modern thing. And it's, it's fun to browse. It's nice to browse. My kids enjoy it. I enjoy it. I went in looking for Blackouts by Justin Torres because I wanted a hard copy. Mm. And they didn't have it in stock. So there's Ding, number one. Tough beat. National Book Award finalist, it yeah. book contender. Didn't make the cut, as far as I can tell. Second, they had How to Say Babylon um, shelved under New Fiction. Very tough look again for Brian. So right away I was looking for two things. I was like, hmm, interesting. And then (laughs) I was walking, just kind of walk around to see what's there. And this was very much a You've Got Mail moment because I hear a a woman that had come in and she's talking to a staff member and she goes, I'm looking Mm -hmm. for, I think it's called The Starving Caterpillar by Eric (laughs) Carlyle.
2: Are you for real? I'm for real. The starving, the starving caterpillar by, <laughs> by
0: Eric Carlyle. Amazing. And then the staff member, there like, so she's like, oh, okay, um, and then she says, so starving caterpillar by Eric. Oh Carlyle. my god. Let me go see. Oh, Jeff. And no, and, say it ain't so. Well, and listen, I don't think you need to know any. It's not a. It's, you don't have to know anything about anything necessarily to do any kind. Anyone can be good at a job just because you didn't recognize or couldn't immediately parse what that was. But that was a very like. Noel Stratfield <laughs> moment, right? And I was trying not to be a, I didn't want to be a jerk, right? So mm-hmm. I was like, huh. So the 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 staff member walked away and I, I said to the woman, and here's the best part. I said, oh, I think you're looking for The Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carle. And then I pointed behind her and there was a whole wall of Eric Carle books with two giant, very, and I was like, you know, there, it's a retail store, right? It it just is. But uh-huh. that was a very like funny, funny moment to see. So <laughs> the starving caterpillar. So all this stuff about we run like an indie. A little salt in that particular pitch was introduced into mm-hmm. the recipe for me on that particular day. That's mm-hmm. one day I'm looking for two books. They're kind of nerdy, hipster, whatever. But um, so were those three stories worth relating to you as a bundle in this? <laughs> Do you think listeners yes. care? Yes. Okay.
2: I- that, that bundle was worth it yep. p- just for The Starving <laughs> Caterpillar by Eric Carlyle. Carlyle. Like, are the kids okay?
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's how you know you've got a brand is when people take that like fractured, <laughs> broken signal into a store and you can still get mm-hmm. it somehow. I'm sure the young woman mm-hmm. would have well, come back. Well, you got it. I'm sure the young woman would come back and like would look it up or ask someone else, like, oh, yeah, it's there, right there. But it was kind of a, a funny moment. Wow. Um, how to say Babylon having a moment? We have to We have to wait. Okay, we're going to do Frontless Warrior. So I started Blackouts. Um, 50 pages okay. in. Interesting. I want to talk about the packaging later. I don't have time for it. I also read this week MCU, um, the cinematic history of the Marvel, Joanna with Joanna Robinson, Jonah Robinson yep. Dave Gonzalez, and another writer. I think it was kind of a ghosty kind of, I don't know. It's an, Three writers is interesting. I don't know how it's about. Joanna Robinson works for The Ringer. She does a podcast there. Um, so does Dave Gonzalez. They're really good. And they did hundreds of interviews and. Right in my wheelhouse because it's industrial storytelling. It's a movie that I like, and then a lot of like behind the scenes business stuff. So I enjoyed that. Before we talk about lessons in chemistry for a few minutes, anything you wanted to hit in front and recent reading?
2: Yeah. I read Family Meal by Brian Washington oh, over the yeah. weekend. And? Mm hmm. Okay great. Okay, excellent. Yeah. It was one of those like, I had all day Saturday open. I hadn't had a free Saturday in like a month. I wanted to sit on the couch and read a novel that I could take down in one day, and I was like, Brian Washington is going to be it, and I was right, and he was great. It is, it's really good. It's not the easiest subject matter, like not the Mm -hmm. easiest read, I guess. Um, Set in Houston where, I think Washington was also set. His, um, no, Memorial. His last name is Washington. um, Where Memorial was set, it's about Uh, a young black man who has gone through a painful breakup he has moved back home to houston from la and most like the first half of the book is from his perspective then we get sections that flash back to a perspective from a loved one who has recently died and then from a a long like lifelong friend that he is living with um really like gritty glimpses into a couple characters lives as both racial and sexual minorities in their space. Um, There's eating disorder stuff. There's a lot of drug use, um, it's so like there's trigger warning stuff, and it was I think the first time that I had seen an author write functionally a trigger warning into the front of their ah. book, like where the prologue would be or really where the epigraph would be. There's a like, hey readers, this book contains all of these things, and if that's tough for you, like maybe skip it mm-hmm. or be gentle with yourself. And it's signed by Brian Washington, which is really interesting. interesting. Um, but it's it's great. It moves. It deals with family stuff. It's called Family Meal because one of the characters works at a bakery, and our main character spends a lot of time time with those families. So food figures in and found family kind of stuff figures in. Not a like warm, fuzzy read. I but I really, really liked it. And it was one of those where it's like, this needs to be adapted. Like oh, really? I wanna watch the, I want to watch these characters. Mm. I want to like hang out with them and watch them live their lives. Um but it was it was a good page turner. I really liked it. And I'm halfway through a little romance called Maybe Once, Maybe Twice by Alison Rose Greenberg that the setup is the main character and two different men that she had dated early in, earlier in her life made a pact that if they were both single when they turned 35, they would get married. And now she is 35 and she's reconnecting with both of them and what's going to happen.
0: It's awesome. fun. Okay. Yep. You might hear some banging in the background. I'm not sure if I made my mic some construction here. I'm fine. Nope. I'm not banging my head against the desk. Uh, <laughs> Not now, <laughs> at least.
2: I didn't hear anything. Yeah, okay.
0: Uh, let's do Lessons in Chemistry. Did you watch? I've watched the premiere. Did you watch two?
2: Okay. I've watched the first two, which were released last week. Yeah.
0: Um, we've not talked about this at all. Coming into it, did you expect it to be? Did you have hopes for? Did you think there this was going to be good? Did you think, I'm into this? Mm. I'm excited. I read the book, Brie Larson. Lewis Pullman, Let's Go. Where were you on the pre-hitting play meter? It's a good
2: question. I'm not a huge adaptation person generally, Like unless it's a book I really, really, really love. So I probably would not have watched this if not for curiosity of how are they going to do it. And there's a lot of star power. So I was hopeful that it would be good enough and really curious about how they were going to solve the tone problem that we had talked about. Like The book is great and it's really difficult to figure out who to recommend it to because it's great. And also there's like a sexual assault. That's a big surprise halfway through. Yeah. And, and the, the show does solve that and smooths out some of the questions that I had about how are they going to make this work? I, I at two episodes in, I feel like they have done a good job adapting this book for TV. Okay.
0: Um, we did a bonus podcast on, was that in the regular show or as a Patreon? Do you remember the Lessons in Chemistry I discussion? I don't Doesn't
2: remember. Doesn't matter. We I think, talked about it. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. we did just talk and about it.
0: And we came down on sort of B plus-ish if we had to letter mm-hmm, grade is where we mm-hmm. were, kind of strange tonally. Um, not strange in terms of bad. That's not a view, Miss It's just unusual tonally. Yeah, just,
2: right. E- How do you describe it? Even the
0: packaging, right? This pink cover with a uh, illustrated blonde ponytail on it was not wrong, but also didn't feel right. Um, a combination of extremely serious things with a, a certain levity and strangeness and whimsy, mm-hmm. almost, which we can talk about here. I guess spoiler alert: we, we might spoil at least a little bit of it. Um, I don't think this premiere worked for me, and I don't mm-hmm. know. I, it's hard to put my finger on it. Um, I think I've always enjoyed Brie Larson's work. I think Lewis Pullman is maybe the best thing about the the premiere yes, to me. I agree. He's really fun and awesome and extremely handsome and built. We get a butt shot that I'm sure he (laughs) roided up for, you know, he wasn't eating
2: for a week or something. Did a lot of squats that week. Yeah,
0: it's a lot of squats that week. That was important to show his ass, I guess, um, because he showers in the lab. (laughs) I think part of it was I wasn't super hot on the source material, but it also kind of feels like an amalgam of, of other adaptations or work that I think were all better than it. I think it's mm. part Mad Men, part Hidden Figures, part, part Queen's Man. Gambit. Yeah. And I think all of them are better than this by a considerable margin.
2: That's The question I was asking myself while I was watching these was, who is this show for? Yeah. <laughs> like, if you weren't a super fan of the book. And I was not a super fan of the book. So I don't know that I'm going to continue after those first mm-hmm. two. I think they did a good job adapting it. I'm missing like there is a zaniness yes. to Elizabeth Zott on the page that Brie Larson, either she's not bringing it out or the writing of the show did decided, not call This is the decision they decided to make it. or whatever, yeah. Yeah, they went for like a little, more of like a straight line, very, uh, like very serious, very Possibly particular. neurodivergent.
0: I think we're writing around a lot it, of these issues in some of like the Lewis made me think yeah, of this especially. Yeah, and,
2: and I didn't... I didn't wonder when I read the book if Bonnie Garmus was trying to code that character yeah. as a neurodivergent, but it feels like Definitely either does. Larson is playing her that way or it was written that way. I kept thinking I'm, I'm missing like an Emma Stone, like sparkle in the eye from it. Yeah, um, And I like Brie Larson a lot, but I, I don't know if it's casting or you know, what else is going on there. I think that the showrunners did about as good of a job addressing this book and making it for tv as you could at least from what i've seen so far that the first episode has flashbacks that sort of hint that this character has experienced something which i thought was very well done
0: i wondered how they were going to handle this and who knows what the future ones if we're going to get a full reenactment or not but i thought that was well so you
2: do you get a full reenactment in the second episode the second episode starts with an on-screen warner that are warning that there will be sexual mm. assault, and like you know, the usual number you can call if that's something that you need resources for. And then it does show pretty early in the episode the whole experience where Elizabeth Zod is sexually assaulted by a professor who is in the department where she's trying to get her PhD, and that that's the origin story of why she is working for this chemistry company with her master's but never finished. Um, so we get that, and then we get. Like it goes back to the main storyline where she's meeting Lewis and she's falling in love, and you know all of that good stuff is happening. The chemistry between them is fun to watch. When they and can, I think when it's... they give
0: themselves a moment, so yeah. off the hook a little bit. It is, fun. yeah.
2: There's there are some nice moments in the second episode between them. Um, it feels true to the spirit of the book, where this was a story about a woman who had had this experience and it had shaped her life, but it wasn't. The defining experience in how she thought of herself and that the book and her life could still have lightness and still have joy. Um, And it feels like they've tried to stick to that um for the show as well but really interesting i was like who is gonna watch this if you're not doing the experiment that we're doing i'm just like for science i want to know how they've made this yeah um, but man I, casting is great the
0: casting and, and again as an apple production it looks like a million bucks it does. Uh, soundboard it does. we spared no expense well two uses of the soundboard that doesn't exist today <laughs> um it looks like a million bucks you know it's still confusing, like where we are. I mean, in the book, I think we get a little bit more like we're in a private research lab. Like, if you don't know that, they're like, there's this Remsen money, and where's the stuff coming from, and who yeah. are all these people? And I don't, somehow the book got away with what feels like a bit of a cognitive dissonance of lightness and darkness, of seriousness and zaniness. And the show decided to do neither. Like, it's neither, it didn't lean into the dark element, at least in the premiere, right? It's like, Mm-hmm. It didn't really become that kind of satire critique. And the stuff about sex discrimination and the, these pig-headed jerks felt really on the nose in a way that yeah. wasn't interesting, even if it was probably contemporaneously accurate. It just felt like you know, we, we know this. We, we saw Mad Men. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we did yeah, this already. Yeah, I
2: think It's just suffering for the fact that we've all seen Mad Men. We have seen a story that's largely about sexism set in that time period. Like, the sets look like it. I love love this time period. The costumes are wonderful. There are some good dresses and, like, good old-fashioned cars. But it feels so much like watching... Mad Men and Mad Men handled all of those things with a lot of skill and deftness of like a a lot of showing and not so much telling. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of telling about it, especially in that first episode of Lessons in Chemistry. We're like, I don't know, maybe if you didn't watch all of Mad Men, it's not fair to like make it compare. That's not what Bonnie Garmus is doing, but that's in our brains as TV viewers. So And
0: the subject matter, like the actual chemistry. um, It's been a while since I had a grammar chemistry, but I think I got gobbledygook (laughs) out of it. Right? Like, what is abiogenesis and nucleotides? Like, good Lord.
2: I was thinking about the Lauren Graham novel or the memoir where she talks about um, when she was learning to audition. Yeah. Medical, medical, medical (laughs) for (laughs) medical terminology. Like, yeah, it could have just been chemistry, chemistry, chemistry. And like, I I would be none the wiser.
0: So, in an interest, I I can't imagine it doesn't feel like the same kind of thing that's happened to the lessons in chemistry book is going to. I don't think here. so I, I don't know this is something we need the court of truth to tell us do, do the the book club um, contingent and that's both figurative and literal that loves loved lessons in chemistry they turn this on what is their reaction to it
1: I kind of find mm-hmm. it hard
0: to believe they're gonna be like yep this is it this is the this is the it. It. they got right. it exactly yeah. right um, okay that's our show lessons in chemistry you can get it on Apple TV again it looks wonderful also the first episode was like 59 minutes it was so long um very long to do. Not a, not a great start to our adaptation fall, but there's, there's some heavy hitters coming. We didn't talk about American mm-hmm. Fiction Trailer. Do yourself <sighs> a favor. Go Google American Fiction Trailer. That, now we're talking. Spicy. Now we're talking. Rebecca, thank you so much. Email us, podcast at bookriot.com. You can find the show notes at bookwright.com slash listen. The Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast, and first edition. That's a lot of stuff for you to try. A little something for everybody. Um, and we'll talk to you Later.